today, today we are in John chapter 21. You know, I grew up, our family grew up watching the Andy Griffith show. We were Andy Griffith fans. I think it would be safe to say we were connoisseurs. We were fanatics. And this was before digital media. So if you wanted to see an Andy Griffith episode rerun, you actually had to record it on a VHS tape, a physical tape. Do you remember these days? And in the Andy Griffith universe, because this is Nerdville, of course, there's all sorts of controversy about how Andy Griffith shows in. There's, there's typically, as in most shows, an epilogue that sort of ties up all the loose ends. But oftentimes, because TBS is the spawn of Satan, they would cut off the epilogue um, in order to save time. And, and so if you ended up recording an Andy Griffith episode and watching it and you got to the end and there was no epilogue, you felt a little, how shall we say, unsatisfied, a little unfulfilled. It was, the ending was too abrupt. There was, there was still too many loose ends that needed some sort of, of closure. And you need to know that John 21 functions to the Gospel of John kind of like an epilogue. Remember in John 20 that we had sort of the climax of the whole book. We had this amazing confession by Thomas, my Lord and my God. And John sort of ends with this triumphant, and and these things are written so that you might believe. But then you've got this interesting chapter here, John 21. This has led many scholars to think, oh, well, this is written 200 years later or 100 years later, and it was under pseudo-John and by his disciples, and it was added in... I don't think so, because if we had ended, if John had ended after last week, after John 20, there's a couple of major unresolved issues in this gospel. Number one, what happens to the disciples? See, if you look at all the other gospels, Jesus rises from the grave, he gives a commission, and then it shows the the, the apostles going forth in some sort of act of faith or, or mission or commission. But here, we don't know. We just know that Jesus shows up to a room of scared men, and he gives them a commission. So that's an unresolved issue. What what happens with the, the apostles? But secondly, and probably much more personally, particularly for those who are reading this gospel, we have to ask, what happens to Peter? See, Peter had betrayed Jesus three times. Peter had given the resolution of all resolutions, I will never abandon you. But we recall from other points in the gospel and in the other gospels where Jesus has said, hey, on this rock, Petros, I will build my church. Peter, you're going to be the, the leader of the early church. In fact, for those who are reading this gospel, this is now 60 years later, they would have known precisely that was who Peter was. He had been a prime leader in the church next to the Apostle Paul, and they would have naturally asked, John, how does Peter get from here to there? Is there ever any sort of resolution, reconciliation, reconnection to Jesus? What about their friendship? What about their relationship? But John doesn't leave those loose ends hanging. He gives us John 21. And we're going to look at part of John 21 today, the bulk of it, then the rest next week. I'm going to invite you to stand. We stand here at Four Oaks Church when we read the Word of God. It's a, it's a symbolic act that just says we stand under His Word. This is a little longer text, 
19 verses. But I think it's an amazing text. This is just such a rich text. So we're going to start in verse 1. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. And he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I am going fishing. They said to him, we will go with you. And they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore. Yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to them, children, do you have any fish? And they answered him, no. And he said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast it, and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. That disciple whom Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. So when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work and threw himself into the sea. The other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from the land, but about a hundred yards off. Now when they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word. May he write its truths upon our hearts and we take a seat. Usually, and you know this if you've, if you've been here a while, I like to divide up the passages into points and little outlines and alliterations, which are inspired by the Holy Spirit, of course. But, but not this time. That's not what you're going to get this time. This story is too precious. This story, this narrative, you just don't want to ruin it. It's meant to be read just like we read it, and to sit under it and absorb it and meditate on it. So we don't want to get too cute 
with this. We want the text to tell the story, so we're just going to walk right through the text. Now, if you need a title, I will give you a title, okay? Let that be your point if you want it. And, and here it is. It's very simple. An early breakfast, an amazing grace. You're going to see the grace of God woven all through this passage. It's the one thing you want to walk away from this morning to understanding that better, how it applied to Peter, importantly, how it applies to you. Okay, look at verse 1. John says, after these things, and, and this is meaning to signal that the, the scene of the action is shifting. Recall that Jesus previously had told the apostles in the other gospels, go leave Jerusalem, go up to Galilee, which was their home base, remember, in Capernaum, and wait on me there. Wait for further instructions. And so this is apparently what the disciples did. And here we have a snapshot. John says they're on the Sea of Tiberias, which is just another name for the Sea of Galilee. And Peter makes this declaration, I am going fishing, which on one hand makes perfect sense. This is what he does. This is who he's been. This is, this is how he's made his wage. This is his profession. But what we also sense here that John is telling us something else, that this has also been Peter's identity. You know, it's interesting if you get a, if you get a bunch of group, group of dudes at a community group, and, you know, the, the women are in the, this is stereotypical, but I find it to be true 99.9% of the time. But, but the women are in telling stories and having all kinds of fun and opening their life. And within the space of an hour and a half, they know everything about each other. And the guys are looking around at each other. And then somebody has the nerve to say, well, what do you do, right? Now, no one ever says, man, I just love hanging out with my family and I watch football and I'm a wine connoisseur. And no, is that what guys say? No, 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 no. Ladies, you need to know that when one guy says to another, what do you do? That's a signal. It's time to talk about your job, right? It's time to talk about your profession. Because profession in our culture, increasingly male, female, we know this, is our identity. It's who we are. It's what we do. It's, it's comprised of the very makeup of our souls. And you get the sense that the same thing is going on with the disciples. They're not just like out fishing, like let's have some fun and go fishing. They're, they're fishing. Interesting that Jesus had just given them a commission. Now think about this. He had just given them a commission in John 20, just as the Father sent me, I am sending you. And so are they up in Galilee like praying and fasting and waiting on the Lord? And No, they're, they're fishing. Do you get, this, get the idea here? And the reason this is significant, let's remember for a second, where was it that Peter and the other disciples were when Jesus first called them into discipleship in Luke chapter 5? Where were they? In a boat, on a lake, fishing. Probably, probably, we don't know this, but probably this very boat, it was probably Simon Peter's boat. And what did Jesus tell them in Luke 5? He said, look, you guys are fishing for fish, but guess what? You're about to be fishers of men. So Jesus is now resurrected. He's given them this charge. He's given them this commission. But they're not fishing for men. They're fishing for fish. See, they had, you got to understand something. Jesus had appeared to them 
and made himself known. But they were still a wounded group of dudes, particularly Peter. The last time they were on mission for Jesus, what did they do? They ran. They abandoned him. They were fearful for their life. In fact, Peter denied him not once, not twice, but three times. And as Tim Keller notes about this passage, you know, anybody, you know, when you sin once, you kind of just say, well, that was a mistake, right? Like that was a slip up. That was a moment of weakness. Um, That was, there was extenuating circumstances. We do this in our own lives. But when you do something three times, what does that mean? Well, it's really kind of you, isn't it? It's kind of true. It's kind of real. That's the same thing going on with Peter. This is a group in desperate need of restoration. This is a group in desperate need of some sort of relational, not just closure, but reconciliation. And let me just ask you, as you come in this morning, do you find yourself in a similar place? Personally, relationally, some sort of cloak of shame that hangs over you about something you've done or that's been done to you? Well, that's the disciples. And interestingly, in verse 4, it says, Jesus sought them out. Jesus is standing on the shore. Now, when we had our Four Oaks Israel trip a year or so back, we, we looked and went to the traditional spot where this all supposedly was, was happening. And we don't know for sure, but it's <clears throat> probably as good a guess as any. And, and it's interesting because there's probably a house. And then in front of the house, there's an outdoor cooking area, like on rocks. And the Sea of Galilee um, kind of pushes right up to the shore. And Jesus would have been there sort of getting the fire going, doing some, some cooking in this fire pit. And it would have undoubtedly been dark. Look at verse 4. It says, just as the day was dawning. This probably accounts for why, as they're 100 yards offshore, and, and it's just, the sun's just about to come up. They, they look, they see a shadowy figure. They don't recognize that it's Jesus. And it says here, look at verse 4, that Jesus calls out children. And that's not like little children. It's actually slang for lads, boys, guys mates, okay, blokes, I don't know, whatever, whatever word you want, dudes. And he says, have you caught anything? Do you have any fish? Now, you sense in that something a little bit mischievous on the part of Jesus. It's almost as if he's saying the, 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 the nature of this is, I bet you haven't caught anything, have you? Dudes, you're, you're fishing in the wrong place. Go, go, go throw the nets Go check that spot out right over there. See, Jesus is priming the pump for what's about to happen. So it says, look back at the text, they they did cast it in verse 6 on the right side of the boat. And it says, this catch was such, was the mother load of all catches. And John says they caught 153 fish. Now, Biblical interpreters have tried to make much of this number like, is it like an exponential square root of the Da Vinci Code times eight? You know, they they do this whole maneuver. But in actuality, I don't think it's that complicated. 
If any of you dudes went out and shot a 37-point buck, what would you do? Or ladies, what would you do? You would take a picture of it. You would post it on Facebook, okay? Every day for the next 10 years, probably. You would stuff its head. You would put it on your wall. You would remember it. And every time somebody came into your house, you would say, you may not have heard this story before, although they would have. But remember that day that I shot this 37-point buck and it was like on the front page of USA Today and blah, 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 blah? You would remember it, right? Apparently, 153 fish was so significant. This is interesting. 60 years later, John's still talking about it. That's how amazing this is. This is how miraculous this is, right? It also confirms... This is some serious eyewitness testimony. John, how do you know Jesus is real? Let me tell you about the day Jesus came and fished with us. But verse 7, of course, it's John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, says, it is the Lord. Remember, John is the cerebral one of the bunch. Peter is the impetuous one. John is, John is thoughtful. He's theological. He puts two and two together. He remembers the last time Jesus went fishing with them. What happened? They caught a mother load, and it was so big, the nets broke. And now this is, this is a catch to match that one. This time the nets don't break. John totally puts two and two together. He is a sharp pencil, and he immediately says, Of course, it is the Lord. This is supernatural. This is, this is amazing. And so he, he calls out. Now, at this point in time, this particular episode of when they catch fish versus the one three years previous when the nets broke, here is, here is the striking difference between the two things that happen now. don't know if you recall, but in Luke chapter 5, after Jesus had told them to cast the nets and they caught the mother load and the nets broke, how did Peter respond at that point? He said, he, it says he fell down and he told the Lord, get away from me, Lord, I am unclean. See, he, he knew that something supernatural had happened. He knew that Jesus was not merely another man. He knew that this was, was it the anointed one, the chosen one, was this God? He, he wasn't sure. He just knew who he was and who he wasn't. He was a sinful man. He couldn't abide by the presence of a holy God. And just remember, every time you see people encountering God in his glory in Scripture, they always end up on the floor. Guys, if Jesus showed up in here today, we would not be all going out to have a cup of coffee together. This place would come undone you and I would be undone. We would be prostrate. We, were, we would be trying to find the floor, what's below the floor. That's what Jesus did the first time. But yet, interesting in this passage, that's not what Peter does, is it? Peter, you can't even hold him in the boat. He is immediately off the boat into the water. 100 yards. He doesn't, he can't even wait. No, when it says here that when Simon heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment for he was stripped for work. Do you know what that literally means? 
he was kind of like fishing in the buff. Do you know what I'm saying? That's what fishermen did. They didn't want any encumbrance. And so he, all those, all you people who fish out on Shannon Lakes, he who have ears, let him hear, okay? So, so don't go there, but this is dark. He's, at the very least, he, he maybe had like a little, like a little loincloth or something, but he doesn't even wait. He grabs his coat. He jumps in the water. He's, he's swimming as fast as he can towards Jesus. And we have to ask, what's different this time? than last time. What's different? Why the change? Why the guilt-ridden, shame-filled, Jesus-denying Peter, what has come over this man? That's an important question for us to ask. Because if we are covered in shame this morning and there's something that's keeping us back and we are hiding, we are fearful, we are covered in sin, there's something to learn from what Peter does here. And I think the answer is very simple. It's not complicated. It's simply this. Jesus shows up. Jesus is there. And in that moment, everything converges for Peter and he realizes, my Lord and my God has come back. Oh my goodness, my Lord and my God whom I betrayed, he he loves me. He has not abandoned me. He's he's forgiven me. He's offering me another chance. He wants to be with me. You see, Peter realized in that moment, I believe, that he had a Savior who loved him, who died for him, and who showed up in the middle of the night on the shore to pursue him. Even in the midst of his brokenness and treachery, and betrayal. See, Jesus is there to exchange Peter's shame for Jesus's grace. You know, shame is a powerful thing, isn't it? What what do you do when you feel ashamed or where you've sinned grievously or even just embarrassed yourself? I'll tell you what I want to do. When 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 I'm here and I preach a sermon that let's be honest, is not up to par, which is rare, I get it. But nonetheless, when it does happen, it happens more often than hopefully you realize. What is, the, what is my first instinct when I'm done preaching? I want to run and hide. I want to put my head in the sand like an ostrich, which may be what some of you want to do after sermons here anyway. I don't know. But a lot of you can relate, Right? Some of you have come in here this morning wearing shame around you like a trench coat. You've done something. There's something that's haunting you. There's something that, that, that you know intellectually God has forgiven you. But there's just something in your soul that won't let it go. You wonder if you can ever be truly restored. Truly healed. You know, today is Sanctity of Life Sunday, and at the end of our service, we're going to pray for the cause of life and pursuing and protecting the unborn. But a lot of times when we talk about sanctity of life, when we talk talking about what it means and its claim upon us, this is sort of a shame trigger, isn't it, for many of you? There might be women in here who have had abortions, 
you might feel like Peter in the boat the first time, where you're like, away from me, Jesus, I am unclean, I am not fit to be in your presence. But yet, Jesus wants you to know that he is on the shore this morning preparing a feast for you. Do you know that? Let's go back to the text. You can pick that off. Peter shows us the remedy for shame. Because you know what the remedy for shame is? It's, it's not complicated. I didn't say it wasn't hard. I just said it's not complicated. The remedy for shame is demonstrated by Peter is just run to Jesus. Get to Jesus as fast as we can. And as we do, when we find mercy and grace and unconditional love, something amazing happens. When we know that nothing, that, that, that nothing eternally can happen to us because of what we've done or who we are or where we've been, when we know that we are completely 100% secure in Christ, this is an amazingly liberating thing. All of a sudden, we can begin to tell other people our story. We can say, you know, let me just tell you, this is something I've just not wanted to share with anybody, and it's dark and it's ugly, but I want to share it with you because I want the people of God to walk alongside of me. I want my spouse to walk alongside of me. I, see, th- as we tell our stories and as the redemption of Christ comes to shine in on those places of shame, amazingly, it's not that those things cease to be true, but what we come to understand, there's something more true, more important than even our shame, and it's simply this, the righteousness of Christ. The righteousness of Christ. Without it, we have no hope. This is something that's given to us by the gift of faith, the free gift of faith. This is something that's by the grace of God. It's something that's pursued by him, initiated by him. That is why Jesus is on the shore. Verse 9, it says that Jesus has made a charcoal fire. Now that's a unique word. We find it one other time in the Gospel of John. And where do you think that might be? It was the night that Jesus was betrayed and he was on trial at Annas's and Caiaphas's house. And it says in that text, and this is from a, a while back, that the soldiers and the people who were associated with the high priest, they were, it was dark, just like now. They were huddled around a what? Fire, a charcoal fire, just right now, and Peter was there. And we, and we know that, that Peter had the betrayal of all betrayals. He says that he denied Jesus three times. And it says that at the end of that third denial, Jesus turned and looked at Peter. Remember this? Can you imagine the overwhelming shame? Well, Jesus has clearly reenacted this whole story for Peter. Because here is Jesus, he's tending to the fire, he's cooking this meal, which is, again, a sign of genuine fellowship, invitation, come sit down, let's sup together, let's 
let's, let's reconcile. For us, we can just hang out and eat, and it's not that big a deal. But, but eating in this culture is the most intimate of things. It's something only friends, close friends, do together. And Jesus proceeds to take Peter back through that night. One question at a time. And, 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 and part of this, part of us just wants to, to tell Jesus, stop. Oh my goodness, Jesus, this is so painful. Why, why, why can't you just leave it at one time, Jesus? Peter said he loves you. Just forgive him and move on, right? See, there was three denials which means there needed to be three affirmations. And what Jesus is doing here is that he's administering a severe mercy, a tough grace. He's wanting to do surgery on Peter's heart by taking him back through that time 40 days prior where Peter had denied him three times and to get him to... To, to claim to own what he had done, not for the purpose of shaming him, though, but for the purpose of healing him. For the purpose of having his shame exposed so that the light of love and truth and mercy and forgiveness could shine upon his heart. And it's interesting that the way that, that Jesus does this, he, his first question looked down, in verse 15, it says, Do you love me, Simon, more than these? Now, who are the these? Who are the these? Scholars have all sort of debate about this. It's, it's his profession, or it's his life, or whatever. I think Jesus means the disciples, and I'll tell you why. Remember when they were around the, the, the table at the Last Supper? And Jesus said, here, I'm going to give you guys a, a little word. You're all going to abandon me. Remember when Jesus said that? And who was it that first spoke up? Peter. And he said, Lord, I, I, not we, I will never abandon you. These buffoons, these weak, faithless disciples, (laughs) they may abandon you, but guess what? I never will. And Jesus is again reminding him, Peter, do you really love me more than these it says by the time he gets to verse 17, look there, it says that Peter is grieved. And, the, and it literally means he was heavy. Do you remember that, that, that psalm we read in Psalm 51 in worship where it talks about my, my bones ache day and night? This is Peter, he, he feels the heaviness. He feels the distress. Do you love me more than these? And he begins to take him through the questions, through the paces. And he says, well, Peter, if you really love me, go feed my sheep. Now, what what is Jesus saying there? Three times. Peter, I know you're a broken man. Peter, I know you betrayed me. Peter, I know that you're sinful. But you know what? It's upon you and the other apostles that I'm going to build my church. So no more groveling. No more hiding. It's time to get back in the game. And the way that you are going to demonstrate your love for me is that you are going to pour your life into other people. You're going to serve my church. Interestingly that he says, my sheep, not whose sheep, not Peter's sheep. 
Not, not the apostles' sheep, not one another's sheep, Jesus' sheep. This should really get our attention. Because you realize when we, we talk about pouring ourselves out in service to the body of Christ, you're not doing this on behalf of Four Oaks. You're not doing that on behalf of the pastors. You're doing that on behalf of the Lord who says, pour yourself into my bride. For us pastors, leaders, it's a huge lesson. I, hate, I do hate it when people say, well, you know, that's so-and-so's church, after meaning the pastor's name. That, he started that church. That's his church. Blah, blah, blah. I can't stand that. Because it's, it's, it, it implies improper ownership. Guys, we are all leaders, elders, pastors, members, whoever you are. We are all on the same level when it comes to this idea that this church does not belong to us. It belongs to Jesus. And when we realize one day that Jesus is going to come back, and he's going to ask us to give an account of how we have fed the sheep, how we've poured ourselves into our little ones or our students or hosted people in our home. See, that, that's the measure that we know that the grace of God has gripped our hearts. But Jesus has one more thing to tell Peter, and it sounds almost morose. It sounds morbid in some sense, but look at verse 18. He tells Peter, truly, truly, I say to you, and you love Jesus, he just never leaves well enough alone, right? God say one more thing. This is important, though. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. Jesus is using slang, a euphemism, this idea of stretching out your hands. That was universally known as another way of referring to crucifixion. That you are stretched out. That when you're young, you're footloose, you're fancy free, you do what you want, you go where you want. But Peter, there's coming a time when you're going to go somewhere you don't want to go. They're going to stretch your hands out and you're going to follow me in my own crucifixion. Now understand something, Peter most likely would have been martyred 30 years before. Okay, 30 years after this passage, but 30 years before John was actually writing it. This is why John can say that, G, that this was meant to to predict or prophesy the kind of death that Peter would experience. And, and we, ha- we have to realize, well, this meant that like for 30 plus years, Jesus, I mean, Peter had to walk around with a death sentence on his head. What would you feel like if, if, if you were told, you know, there's going to be a time in your life where you're going to the gas chamber, you're going to the electric chair, they're going to hang you, Hopefully you didn't live in 15th century England where they will do all sorts of horrible things to you, right? Like, can you imagine going through life with that sentence over your head? It's kind of like when you do that DNA testing now and you can find out what you have, what you're susceptible to, what's in your genetic code. A lot of people are like, I don't want anything to do with it. I don't want to know. You can go to do one of those websites where you punch in the death clock statistics, right? And you can have your death clock constantly running on your desktop based upon your factors for who you are. And you're we're like, we, what is going on here? Jesus, are you wanting to encourage Peter? John MacArthur has an amazing insight about this, and I think he's right on. He says this was actually meant 
to be a great encouragement to Peter. Because what did Peter want more than anything else? For all his faults, for all his, his impetuousness, for all of his rashness, brashness, what is the one thing Peter yearned to do? He wanted to please the Lord. He wanted to be faithful. He wanted not to fall away. His greatest fear was always, am I just one step away from blowing it again? Am I going to fail? Am I going to deny Jesus? And here's what Jesus is telling him. You're going to be faithful, Peter. You're not going to deny me. In fact, you're going to be so faithful, you're going to be martyred for your faith. And the reason you're going to be faithful is that my grace is going to sustain you. And for the rest of his life, Peter is a transformed man. You read, you read it all through the book of Acts. This is a man on a mission. He knows that nothing can happen to him outside the sovereign plan of God. He knows that he is, he is called to faithfulness, and he is going to be faithful. It was, a, it was a point of great confidence building for him, I think. And it says, church history tells us that he was indeed crucified, but upside down at his request because he, at this point, did not think himself worthy to follow Jesus in the exact same way to his death. Because can you see now what an amazing meal this is? (laughs) It's an amazing meal for an amazing grace. And there is another supper that is coming one day. And it may not be soon as, it, as we mark the time, but it's just going to be in the blink of an eye in God's timing. Where he's going to return and he is going to inaugurate the wedding feast of the Lamb. We're not going to be eating, well, we might eat fish, but we're not going to be drinking water. We're, it's going to be a party. It's going to be a celebration. Jesus is going to invite us to sit around the banquet table of the Lamb and he is going to serve us. Sometimes you ask, why, Pastor Paul, why do, we, why do we celebrate the Lord's Supper every week? Because it's a foretaste. See, it's, it's, a, it's a meal, it's a shadowy form of the meal that we are going to enjoy one day forever with Jesus who came, who died on a cross, who rose again, built a fire, cooked supper, cooked breakfast, invited us in all because of his amazing grace. I'm just going to ask you before we head to the table this morning just to take a minute or two silently before the Lord and just meditate upon that.